Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director at the Long Now Foundation. Here at Long Now, we work on a variety of projects, from the 10,000-year clock to the Manual for Civilization Library to our linguistic archiving projects, all with the goal of fostering long-term thinking. We want to make thinking on the scale of decades, centuries, or even millennia common instead of rare for the sake of future generations and ourselves. This talk from Michael Tubbs is all about breaking down the socioeconomic barriers that prevent people from thinking about the future and creating a future where everyone gets to think long term. People living in poverty or in unsure housing are often forced to worry about what their short term needs are before being able to even consider their deeper future. As the first black mayor of Stockton, California, and the youngest mayor of any major American city, Michael Tubbs implemented a guaranteed income pilot program. Guaranteed income, if you aren't familiar with it, is a simple, effective way to fight poverty, giving people money unconditionally. Tubbs' pilot program in Stockton was a success. It decreased people's income volatility, improved their emotional well-being, and helped them get jobs. Now, as the founder of End Poverty in California, he's working to implement these policies on the state level. As someone who grew up in Stockton, Tubbs was able to give an on-the-ground look at the most pressing issues facing our society today in a way that is generally out of reach of national politicians. To expand on this view of the power of local government, we've included a section from the late political theorist Benjamin Barber's Long Now Talk on If Mayors Ruled the World. Before we get to Michael Tubbs' talk, a quick note. The Long Now Foundation is entirely supported by donors and members. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of Long Now and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Now, without further ado, Michael Tubbs. Well, first, good evening. Um, so, so good to see you all. And I want to start our conversation today um, with an acknowledgement that it is such an incredible privilege to have the space, to have the time, to have the mental capacity to think about the future. We know that brain science tells us that poverty infects and makes it difficult to do long-term thinking. That for the 6 million Californians living in poverty or the 37 million Americans living in poverty, not to mention those who are one paycheck, one sickness, one COVID diagnosis away um, from losing two weeks of work and, and being plunged in poverty themselves, that, that this idea of long-term thinking is something that neurologically is very difficult to do because it impacts sort of the ability of the brain to think and plan long-term. So I want to center our remarks on the future with the acknowledgement that the future we deserve is impossible to build without everyone being part of building it. I submit to you as I start our conversation today that a lot of people today in San Francisco, in Stockton, in Los Angeles, throughout the state, and throughout this country, are living a nightmare in the present that's the result of someone's dream of the past and what the future could look like. And if we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the future, then we have to make sure that everyone has the ability 
to be part of what the future for our great state and, and for our country and our society um, looks like. And, and I also stand before you today, I think, as one of many examples of, of what the future can look like. 32 years ago, I was born in poverty in one of the poorest cities in the state, Stockton, California, with a mother who was 16 and, and a father who still is incarcerated. And 32 years later, I get to give talks about the future. I, I, I was a mayor. I, I get to advise the governor. And I, and I say that to say that we're missing on so much potential so many dreams of what our society could be like because so many people are trapped in the present. And I just submit to you today that the future we deserve, that the future we need, that the ability to imagine a society as it should be predicates on the decisions we make today, particularly around the issue of poverty and the avoidable impairment of basic human needs in our state and in our country. And when I think about sort of how do we design the future, or what does the future look like? I think of a story my grandmother taught me. My grandmother is the holiest person I know. What's today? Thursday? Wednesday? She's probably at church or watching church. If it's thir any day that ends in the wild, my grandmother's at, at church. And growing up, um, she taught me this parable that I think everyone knows pretty well. She said one time there was a guy walking down the road. And as he was walking, he was beat up. Um, left on the side of the road to die. He just got hijacked, ambushed, he got robbed. And she said that a priest walked by and saw the man on the side of the road and said, well, hmm, maybe God ordained for this person to be on the side of the road. Maybe there's nothing that can be done. Maybe that's divine, that this particular person was on the side of the road. And then she said another person walked by, maybe it was a politician, um, walked by, saw the man on the side of the road and said, clearly this man chose to be on the side of the road. If this man wasn't lazy, maybe he could pick himself up by his bootstraps and get up from the side of the road. Maybe if this man was smart, he could find a way to get a job to pay for a horse. So he could get up from the side of the road that, that if maybe this man had worked harder in school or if this man uh, had been at the right place at the right, if he had just made better choices, he would not be left on the side of the road. And then she said a Samaritan came by and saw the man uh, on, on the side of the road and sort of got down from his horse, got down. It's probably a woman, actually, when you think of the story. Like, it's a, it's a, a good Samara woman. She got down on the side of the road, um, bandaged his wounds, made sure he had a nice room at the Presidio Hotel, and made sure he was, he, he was good and, and, and on his way. And, and I think oftentimes when we think of policy that, or if we think about the future, we think the future requires all of us to be good Samaritans. And I submit to you today that even that's not enough. And that's not enough because if you look at the road in which the story took place, the Jericho Road, it's a narrow road that's conducive for ambushing. The road is known as the Bloody Pass, meaning that a person on the side of the road wasn't abnormal, that a person on the side of the road wasn't surprising, that in fact, by design, the road was designed in such a way for there to be people left on the side of the road. And I submit to you, as we think about the future, it's not enough to, to think about being good Samaritans. It's not enough 
And it's important for all of us to understand our common humanity. It's not enough to, to, to believe in this notion of universal human dignity, but we have to do the hard work of restructuring the road. Because again, this road was structured for violence. That no one should be surprised to see person on the side of the road when there's easy places for robbers to hide in ambush, where it's narrow and it's hard to get help. And I submit to you today, as we think about the future, the present is a good teacher and that all the outcomes we complain about, to the crime you guys talk about and, and the drug use in the tenderloin, to, to the educational outcomes we see. There was just a smashing grab at the Chanel store in LA yesterday, that all these things are actually predictable based off how our society and, and the present is structured. And that's what I tend to call the setup. So I'm gonna spend a couple minutes just to list a couple of the actions of government of the folks we vote for, uh, the, the things we pledge allegiance to, that have created the outcomes we complain about. And so bear with me as we go through a little history lesson. Um, what we know in terms of the, the present we inhabit was based off actions of the past. And we know that in 1492, some folks came over here and displaced a whole nation of millions of people, indigenous people, and stole their land. We know that in addition to that land theft and genocide, there was also 400 years of human trafficking, 400 years of free labor that created the wealth and created many of the industries we enjoy today and helped cement America's standing as, as the leader of, of this current world order. We know that even after that, we had years of redlining where certain neighborhoods, where certain people left, had homes that were deemed less valuable just because a, a banker made a red line and said, you can't invest here. You can't invest there. We know that during the Great Depression, when that everyone felt there was a new deal that was struck, and that deal said that some people can get GI benefits, even though all people served in war, that some people will be able to go to college, that some people will be able to get housing loans, that some industries will get new deal benefits, and that some people wouldn't. And we know that hundreds of years later, we have a, a wealth gap between the races that hasn't changed since 1964. We know hundreds of years later, the same people who had their land stolen from them have terrible outcomes. We know hundreds of years later, the same people who worked for free for 400 years and were trafficked and raped and brutalized have terrible outcomes. We know that 400 years later, we have those same folks doing similar types of labor in our prison system, fighting fires, doing municipal services, all for below the minimum wage. And, and we know that if you look at any indicator of success and any indicator of failure, if I showed you a picture, if I showed you a neighborhood, if I showed you a street, everybody in here to a T could guess which, what's successful, quote unquote, and, and, and what's not. And then I just submit to you today what I describe as a draconian present is because of the imaginations of those that are able to create the future that we inhabit today. But, but the point of this talk is to give cause for optimism. And what I'm optimistic about is this idea that we can redesign the road in the future that we don't have to have a road or a society or a country structured for an equitable and equal outcomes. That there's literally things we can do, not with a magic wand, but with hard work and with truth to create a future, that, again, that we all deserve to live in.
And before going to the policy prescriptions, let's talk about the truth. Because we also know that in our society, a big part of the way this road is maintained and graveled and made sure it stays the way it is are the lies or the narratives we tell about how we came to be. We know it's hard to solve the issue of poverty if the ubiquitous thought is that people are poor because they want to be poor. We know it's impossible to create a future free of poverty when we believe that people are poor because they're dumber than people with money. We, we, we know it's difficult to imagine or create a world or a future free of avoidable impairment of basic human needs when we believe that somehow that there's a natural order to things, that somehow this hierarchy of human value we tolerate in our society is okay. So the first thing we have to do when thinking about the future is tell the truth. And the truth is this, talent and intellect are truly evenly distributed, but resources, opportunities are not. The folks I went to school with at Stanford weren't necessarily smarter naturally, biologically, genetically, than the folks I grew up with in Stockton, but they had the best schools, the best teachers, the best summer enrichment programs, the, the, the best tutors for 20 years after already being born with an insurmountable head start. We know that the truth is that we miss, miss out on so much. Just recently in the New York Times, there's an article about the Einstein, called the Einstein Effect, and it talks about how high-performing and math, low-income children were less likely to get inventions and, and patents than the worst performing rich children. And that's not a question of merit. That's not a question of ability. That's a question of inputs, resources, and, and structure. But that is something that, that, that we're able to change. And we know on a policy front what works, particularly for the issue of not having money. And it's not teaching people how to manage money they don't have. It's not mentorship. It, 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 it's not um, unpaid labor. It, 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 it's not a, a minimum wage that is lower than the cost of living in every city in this country. Um, but it is cash. And one of the things I did in the, in the old days, when, when I was still an elected official, was we gave people money. And this was in 2017. Before the pandemic, before my good friend Andrew Yang, before we had 80 mayors as a part of Marriage for Guaranteed Income, before we had 100 Guaranteed Income pilots going on in this country, before San Francisco had 12 pilots happening here in the city. And, and it came from this realization. Number one, it came from the imagination of someone who grew up in poverty. It, it took someone who grew up in poverty to start the first basic income program in the country. And I just wanna pause there for a second, because I think it's, again, it's incredibly important in this conversation about the future to understand that those most impacted by the problem have solutions. They have answers. They have the radical imagination needed to liberate us from, from, from some of the nightmarish lives we've all in, internalized. And it was really that lived experience that gave birth to this idea that let's try giving people money. And what we saw is, is no surprise because people are people. We saw that people spent money the way you and I spend money because people are people. They spent the money on their kids. 
They spent their money on utilities. They spent their money on food. <laughs> they spent their money on getting their uniforms clean. And we also saw that the money did not make people stop working. Wow. Uh, the $500 was not enough for people to stop working. Instead, what we saw is that people were able to work more because we saw that for folks living on the margins, for folks living on, in poverty, that $500 was a difference between affording childcare or not. That $500 was a difference between being able to get your car fixed or not. That $500 was a difference from being able to take time off your job where you don't have paid time off, so you can't go interview for a better job without the risk of losing money, and say, you know what, I'm going to bet on myself and go ahead and do an interview and get a full-time job that pays more and, and allows you to work less, as we saw time and time again. And five years later, now we have, again, 80 mayors who are saying, yes, let's figure out what guaranteed income looks like. We had a child tax credit, which cut child poverty in half and... Somehow folks in D.C. thought that was a bad idea and said, let's, with inflation coming, let's cut, let's end the child tax credits to make all the kids poor again. We have momentum around this idea, and I think the future has to be one where we all agree that no one should be poor, that no one should live in poverty, that no one should be homeless. And if those sounds like radical notions, they're not because you don't live in poverty. You don't live in scarcity. You don't live unhoused and unsheltered. So if it's good enough for you, it should be good enough for everyone. And that's not saying everyone needs the same, but it is to say like, what type of future would we have if not one that understands that everyone has the same basic human value and everyone needs at least a baseline level of security to be human, that everyone needs at least the basics, shelter, food, water, the ability to pay bills. And again, we have policy tools that work. And the question is how, building the political will to get there. And again, I think that goes back to the narratives around how do we talk about the present and how do we talk about the future and who do we allow to participate in the conversation around planning for the future? Another policy solution we can do that would literally end the wealth gap in this country would be baby bonds. It's been research, it's been um, theorized, there's literally bills in state legislature, there's literally bills in the U.S. Senate now that says if you put just a little bit of money, a little bit of seed money in a child's account when they're born, and you let it grow, children have assets so that the mistakes of the past don't have to dictate or, or, or narrow their future. And, and, and again, we know what it can do. There's been models. There's really bills in Congress now. There's a bill in the state legislature that just passed, at least for kids with COVID. But this is something we can do today to prepare for a future where if there's gaps in wealth, they're truly gaps based off ability. If there's gaps in wealth, they're truly based on gaps in effort, not based off gaps in government intervention, not based in gaps of marginalization, but but that's really based off merit. And, and, and I think I was having this argument with one of my friends who thinks about the future differently than I do, is that what I'm saying we should want for the future isn't equal outcomes, but just ones. I'll say it again. It's not about equal outcomes. 
It's about just outcomes. It's about outcomes that are predicted by the just inputs we put in and not these wild outcomes we pretend are based off merit, that we pretend are based off ability, that we pretend are based off how everyone's working because that creates the dysfunction, all the isms, the anxiety, the, the, the stress um, that, that plagues our society are far too often today. So as I draw to a close, I, I would say that I am more optimistic than ever the more I think about the future for a couple of reasons. Reason number one being this idea that this present was created by people. This present was created by folks who had dreams and imaginations and values. And I think if we stick to what we say our values are, or as Dr. King said, if we stay true to what we say on paper, we can really build a future that looks like our values of opportunity, of liberty, and of justice for all. And, and, and number two, I, I'm incredibly um, optimistic about the future because for all the ways in which the present isn't what we want to be, sometimes I, I get heartened when thinking about the past was even worse. Like for, for, for all the ways in which um, it feels like we're moving backwards from the, the very real consequences of the Roe v. Wade decision recently um, to the very real consequences of gutting the Voting Rights Act to the very real, real consequences of, of attempted coups and, and insurrections, there was actually a time in this country where things were worse. Um, and, and things only got better because people, even mired in the dysfunction of today, did what this foundation does, did what you all do, and stepped back and said, okay, but what can tomorrow be? And, and, and also, it's, it's incredibly inspiring because we have the opportunity to bring other people into that future planning process to really speak from experience about sort of how the future could look different particularly for those on the margins, because the, the next invention to make our life easier, it's not on Sand Hill Road. It's not in the Presidio. It's probably some little kid in Hunter's Point breathing environmental toxins. It's probably a young person in South Stockton hearing gunshots at night. It's probably a young person in Watts um, sleeping hungry that, that, that when we leave so much on the table, not just for today, but for tomorrow, by allowing the mistakes and the imagination of the past dictate how we live in, in, in the present. So as I conclude 10 years ago, I was on the Freedom Rides with some of the original Freedom Riders. And it was, I reflect on this often because these were like, I mean, they're older folks now, but when they did this, they were 19, 20, 21 years old. They literally signed their will before going on the bus. And, and one guy looked at me, we're going through, we just, lit, we just left one of the penitentiaries in Mississippi. And he looked at me and he said, Michael, I was arrested on August 4th, 1961. Why is that day important? And I said, well, you were arrested. If you weren't arrested, I wouldn't be here. Thank you. I'm so thankful for all the opportunity. Like you, you did that. And, and he looked at me and he said, no son, on that day, Barack Obama was born. And, and then he said he had no idea 
And that's what's so beautiful about long-term thinking and future planning. And that's why everyone needs to be a part of it. Because there's something hopeful and prophetic about it. And, and he said he had no idea that the choice he made on that day would pave the way so that 50 years later, a child born with no opportunity, a child whose birth was illegitimate in some states because his father was black and his mother was white, would have the chance to be president. And then he looked at me and he said, what are you prepared to do today so that 50 years from now, a child born in poverty has the opportunity to be president? And I think that's really the question that motivates the great work of this foundation. It's not just about 50 years or 100 years, but 10,000 plus years in magnitude. And, and the question really is, it's not going to be one person or one dream or one leader that's going to save us. It shouldn't be 10 people or 20 people that are planning the future. Can y'all imagine if it was just Elon Musk thinking about the future? Like, what would, No offense, I'm sure some of his friends are here. It seems lovely. Um, uh, but, um, but it's on each and every one of us every day to think about what our values are and we line that up with the answer to this question, what are we prepared to do today? So that 10,000 years from now, there's a society, there's a country, there's a civilization that looks back at this day and wonders, how do they think that? That looks back on this day and laughs and say, oh my gosh, they allowed that to happen? And how, what are we prepared to do today so that tomorrow, all the things that are imperfect today seem silly, seem antiquated, and they, in the bright tomorrow that we create, is something that our future descendants 10,000 years from now viewed as inevitable. Like how do we create a society that 10,000 years from now, those who look at us as ancestors and are reading about us in history books, look like we look sometimes and say, oh yeah, this was always going to change. This was always going to happen. Like eventually they figured out that women should have the right to choose full stop, that, that, that no one should be poor, that no one should be hungry that no one should be unhoused. And that answer to that question really lies in what we do each and every day. So thank you all for what you're doing. Thank you all for what you will do and looking forward to the rest of our conversation. For this talk, Michael Tubbs is joined by Dr. Michael McAfee, a dear friend and the CEO and president of PolicyLink, a national institute that works to advance racial and economic equity. Their conversation addresses the long roots of poverty in our society, but also hope for the future. They both fundamentally believe that we can build a better world through good governance and policy that keeps an eye to the long term. It's good to be with you, brother. Always good to be with you. I wanted to start with you. You used a word that I think um, is important when we think about long now thinking. You used the word prophetic. And when we think about poverty, when we think about what you do, I want to start with the person first. What do leaders need to be able to do the prophetic work of liberation? Because mm. ending poverty is a liberatory act. Mm. And so when you think about that, what advice do you have for us around? What do leaders need to do 
in their person to be prepared to do this work. And I know it's not absolute and it's a journey, but where do you recommend we start? No, I'm pausing because that wasn't in the questions you sent me. So let me think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to just, I am, I'm just ripping off. Yeah, warm me up. That's what I'm um, no, but, but in all seriousness, I, I, I think that, um, Part of it has to be disengaging from what's possible. Yeah. And we were having the conversation before the talk about how the impossible happens. Yeah. And I, I truly think you have to look at reality for what it is. And there's a delta between what it is and what it should be. But you can't be dissuaded with how big that chasm is or how big that delta is. And Mary Wright Elderman, one of my mentors, she told me, when I was on city council and I was already tired, I'm like, this is crazy stuff. Like, I'm, I'm good. Like, what's what? Mm-hmm. Like, how'd you do this for so long? Yeah. You know, it was like literally my first year in city council. I was like, how'd you do this? And she said, it's a privilege to struggle for justice because you're not by yourself, A, and it's a relay. Yeah. So even if you don't get everything done in your term or everything done in your time, you have to trust that there's going to be someone else to pick up the baton, just like you were the answer to someone saying, he's going to pick up the baton for me. And that, that, so I think it's having that long now thinking as well, that it's not just you, but in the time you have, you have a role to play and that role and what you do in your imagination can't be tethered strictly to what's, what seems possible or convenient or expedient, which is what people really mean when they say possible. It's like what's comfortable, what's not sacrificial and what's convenient. Um, but know that to get to where we need to be, that you have to take some swings and you might miss. And, and, and I think you also, though, have to, when we had the first meeting for my staff and other give people money, and my staff, they all act like they're on board now. They mm. was like, you crazy. We're not mm. doing that. Right, right. Um, and I told them, I said, but you guys, we have a responsibility. If the status quo is fine, let's find something else to do. Like, this is not fun. <laughs> if everything's okay, I'd rather do something else. Um, but if the status quo is untenable, then we have to do something. We have to try and innovate and experiment and be willing to be wrong and to be willing to u- lose. So I think the answer to your question after that meandering Jericho <laughs> wrote it was um, you have to be so – Brene Brown said it like this. She said you have to be really concerned with getting it right versus being right. Like getting it right, like trying versus having the answer. And when you do that, it, it relieves some of the fear and it gives you the opportunity to explore. Because again, the fact that you're experimenting means no one has the right answer yet. <laughs> so right. you're going to be just as right or wrong as everyone else at the worst. Right. And at the best, you can at least point a light as to what, what, what could work or what could a, a possible solution be. That's right. You know, when you think about what you did with guaranteed income, it is... Um, it moves beyond charity. And when you talk about upsetting the setup, that upsets a lot. It upsets the nonprofit industrial complex. <laughs> if we all fell in poverty, we would not say, um, tell me the 20 agencies I should go see. We would say, let me have a little gas, keep it in my car, let me keep <laughs> my lights on, and let me do that. How do we go from where we are at now, where we have a charity mindset, <laughs> 
we have that Samaritan mindset mm. versus the mindset that is necessary to reimagine government systems, reimagine nonprofit systems to do the most elegant thing, which is directly put cash in people's pockets. Yeah, I, I, I really f- believe mm. it, it, it stems from this, and, and it's no one's fault. We, we, we grow up in a society where it's programmed in us and, 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 and ingrained in us that if folks have less, something's wrong with them, mm-hmm. that they're the problem. And until we really recognize that even behaviors that are dysfunctional or behaviors that are abnormal are an effect and not the cause, mm-hmm. the, 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 the effect of a dysfunctional society, of, of dysfunctional community, of, of something that was broken before the person was broken. And until we really get that, we'll continue to have these solutions that again position the person as a problem. And I say that because before we're doing the guaranteed income work, mm-hmm. before we're doing the guaranteed income work, I actually had internalized some of those thoughts myself. Mm-hmm. So when we first were thinking about it before I committed to do it, I had to do some wrestling with myself. Like, can we really give these people money? Like, don't get just give people money. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it took me a while to think and, in the course of that interrogation, I, I, I again had to challenge myself and say, well, what sort of biases have you picked up from being in this, being in this society? And, and, and why, what, what about you makes you better equipped to spend money than someone you don't know? That's right. Well, you know, let's, let's stay on the UBI. Um, Ken, I believe it's Broad, asked the question, um, isn't the focus on UBI misplaced given that the cost of living is so high here, shouldn't the focus be on cost of living? So UBI or or a guaranteed income Mm -hmm. isn't a panacea, Mm -hmm. um, far from a magic bullet. And we have to be able to walk and chew gum and do multiple things at once. Mm -hmm. So, the, the powerful thing about guaranteed income or universal basic income, um, one of them is this idea of income volatility that particularly if you are one paycheck away or two paychecks away from poverty, your income is incredibly volatile depending on the, on the circumstances um, in regards to cost of living. Like if you're tire bust, if you're kid is sick, if you're... Um, you need to take time off work, et cetera. And the guaranteed income helps sort of smooth that. So it builds economic resilience. Um, in, in, in addition, um, there's to deal with high cost of living. You could deal with the drivers, which we should, that bring the cost of living up. You can also make sure people have more money to, to help pay for those costs. So I think in a way, as solutions go, a guaranteed income may be not a perfect solution, but if there's one thing to do, maybe the best solution to deal with all the ways in which lack of cash makes life difficult for folks. Thank you. Kevin Kelly asked the question, what other solutions are there? And I want you to respond to something in relationship to this question. Sometimes when people ask me what are other solutions, I say the first solution should be to stop harm to see the systems of oppression that are right in front of you that are undercutting this good work. Say like a municipality that chooses to 
um, enact excessive fines and fees mm -hmm. in poor neighborhoods, right? Things like that. Mm -hmm. You were talking about the design of oppression. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the solutions and how do you help people see just the design of cities and states that are automatically undercutting all the good poverty work, anti-poverty work? Yeah. yeah. Um, so the LA Times had, a lot of solutions are so simple. Mm -hmm. The LA Times had a really good article today about homelessness mm -hmm. and the shocking conclusion um, was that the biggest predictor of homelessness in the community was lack of affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That um, chemical dependency definitely mm -hmm. was an issue. That's not clear if that's the cause or the effect. Mm -hmm. um, that mental health issues were definitely um, an issue, but the biggest predictor of there's gonna be homeless folk, or folks that are homeless, excuse me, was lack of affordable housing. So one solution would be build affordable housing and make it affordable to build affordable housing. Um, uh, we talked about baby bonds. Um, another sort of solution would be, we, we know what the cost of living is, or at least what it costs to rent a one-bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. And we know today that in 99% of counties in the United States, the minimum wage is not enough to afford a one-bedroom apartment. Um, so a, another solution would be um, a, a, a minimum wage that allows people to pay for minimums, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, a, a, another solution is we have sort of, particularly women, we do caregiving um, and, and, and domestic work. And if you do it next door, you could get paid. But if you do it in your house, you can't. Mm -hmm. And then if you decide to work, but you work minimum wage, your entire check goes to childcare, which is why so many women choose to leave the workforce or coerce to leave the workforce to stay at home and not get paid to do the hard work of child rearing because they went and it's, it's like pay childcare workers enough. Uh, have child care count if you take care of and be paid if you take care of your own children. Um, on the criminal justice reform, like we, we know that, or let's do foster kids. Mm -hmm. I know homelessness is such a big issue. We know that 50% of all foster children will be homeless at some point in their life. Why is that? Are they born inherently homeless? Are they born with an inherent desire to live on the streets? Mm -hmm. Or is it because they're kicked out of a system when they're 18 with no supports and no resources? That's, so uh, uh, and, and the ant, it sounds simple because it is. The answers are simple. Mm -hmm. Implementing them is difficult. Don't get me wrong. But like, the answer isn't a mystery. Like, you don't need a genie. Like, like the, the answers are very clear. It's just building the political will to do it because the answers aren't free in some cases. Um, but we also pay for what we see. Like we spend trillions of dollars on poverty every year. It, but there is a dominant logic to what you're saying that is going to require some long down thinking to change. It was government that built the white middle class, GI Bill, FHA, those types of things. We now say government can't do this. We can't afford it. So how do we make this bridge? You were talking about not making the mistake. Um, and, what's repeating beautiful the past. About, and what's beautiful about that, because I know I was in a conversation with, with some other folks about this, mm -hmm. and they thought I was like attacking them. I said, I've never been a hater. I'm just saying, if government could do it for you and your family, let's do it for everyone's families. Mm -hmm. Like, we know you could do, 
we know it can happen. Let's 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 mm-hmm. do it for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like I, I love I love that for you. I do, but yes. let's do it for for everyone, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so so <laughs> but but I think to your question and, and and I tried to talk about a little bit in my in my remarks and probably should drill down more, but I think part of it is the narratives. Like when we're talking about long now thinking, it's like what's the mindset that you have in you as you think about the future because if your mindset is one of scarcity mm-hmm. if your mindset is one of again hierarchy if your mindset is one of sort of the world is arranged the way it is by the invisible hand of god and market mm-hmm. who just created all this craziness like <laughs> then the future is going to look crazy it's going to look like this like right like, yeah but on mars or something like who wants that so I, 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 I think we have to really do the work of just really interrogating what we see mm-hmm. and really asking the question why. But it's so hard because we're so busy and we're working and we're building and we're doing that to take a second instead of like being mad or angry or next door. Um, you, you say, well, hmm. How did this come to be? If yeah. it's all, and, and then you say this, and, and as the Glover Blackwell says this all the time, we also have to have relentless honesty because I keep hearing nostalgia for a time that never was. Like, I'm not like, like this again. Mm-hmm. Like, not like, let's go back again or let's make this great again. When? And for who? Yeah. Right, because and again to the to the beginning of your question, there there's countless examples in our country's history where our country was great for some folks yes. and had great policies for some folks, and now the rub or the issue is that how do we extend that greatness to all? Yeah. And and I think that's there's, a, there's like a narrative thing or a think uh, a mindset thing we have to really interrogate because again the issue isn't capacity or ability. We can do it. The issue is around who's deserving and who's not. And, 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 and once you got yours, should no one else have any? And, and I think that's the kind of what, some of the fights we're having right now. Do you think we have enough pain for getting to the all, that solidarity? You know, here in the Bay, no matter what color your skin, folks struggle even when they're making good money because of you know, those sins of the past. We, we abandoned the public good of education, public education. So now if you live in the city, you got kids, you got to make a choice. Can I afford private school or my mm. rent or my mortgage? Because in many cases you would say public education is not the best option, so I have to pay for it. Mm. So do you think, oh, how much more pain do we have to experience as a, one path to getting the solidarity or is there another yeah. path? That is a good question. Um, Because it's actually wild how widespread the pain is mm-hmm. and how we still have such polarization. I'm like, I, yeah. I get it. You can hate my music, but come on. Like, let's fix it. Like, you poor, I'm poor. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there's something in common. Let, let's work on that. Um, so actually, Michael, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it will take. You would think a global pandemic would do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Like <laughs> you would think like literally the stock market crashing in a way, like yes. literally like the biggest employers in this country saying government, we need 
bail us out. We have nothing. Yes. You, you think um, a summer of people of all races taken to the streets saying Black Lives Matter, we have to be better? You, 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 you. I don't know what, what, what could be worse. Like, I don't, I, I'm scared about what, like, where are the other options in terms of what's, what's enough for a wake-up call? Yeah. And, and I think that's why the work of this foundation and, and, and the work that you all do at PulseLink is so important. This, this just show people beyond, like, being human and, and nice and kumbaya. Like, this is about survival. That's right. This is about having a future. This is about having a country, a republic, a democracy. So I'm going to keep talking about it, but I, I actually don't know what it's going to take. But I hope it doesn't take too much more. I, I, I can't do more. That's right. Um, of this craziness. We need, like, I need, let's just fix it before it gets worse. That's right. Well, let's move into a little bit more exploration of some of the solutions. You know, Leela asked us, we, we, we know guaranteed income works. So... How do we overcome the objections to it? And, and, and until, piggyback on another part of this question someone else asked, what cities do you think have the greatest promise for having a breakthrough? Hmm. So I turned down a job after I lost re-election in the White House mm -hmm. because I looked and I said, hmm, that Senate doesn't look like it's going to be the type of Senate that's going to do things we need done. Um, and I said, but California, there's no excuse because you don't have any opposition party. It's a one-party state. And one party talks about being for liberty and opportunity and progressive and that. I'm all with that. But highest rate of poverty, so much housing unaffordability, unsheltered people who are unsheltered, et cetera. So I decided to stay in California and to do the work of In Poverty California and Marriage for Guaranteed Income based in California. Because I want to see, is it a political issue? Is the issue that there's just a political party who doesn't believe in that? Or is the issue something else? Is the issue that regardless of political party, there's a comfort with poverty, there's a comfort with hierarchy, there's a comfort with sort of some people doing really, really bad as long as I feel good. And that's what I'm trying to interrogate. So I'm very hopeful about California, actually, because it's my only hope um, in, 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 in terms of how to get these things done. And, and then I think for all the answers to the question about, like, we know what works, why not? We know what works, why not? There's probably a more deliberate and, and didactic answer, but I think the short answer is this country, our policymakers and our history suggests that we are fine giving money to some folks and not to others. And we're fine with some folks being poor. And that makes people very uncomfortable to give money to women. Um, for example. And in fact, many people are arguing that the Roe v. Wade decision and the assault on the um, human rights of women are particularly as women are making gains in economic parity in the workforce, right? Like Because mm -hmm. they have agency over, over, over their body and the decisions they make. Or uncomfortable giving money to black people because black people are lazy and don't want to work and spend money on alcohol and Jordans. 
And people would tell me that all, <laughs> people would tell me that all the time with basic income. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't say black people. They would say, mm-hmm. you know, people. Huh. Right. Spend money on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Talk about me. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, that's how I got these. You're right. Um, I spend money on shoes. Like you do. You have shoes on too. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, <laughs> or we're uncomfortable giving money to like immigrants or like, like, like we just have a discomfort with affording to some folks basic human dignity and just the benefit of the doubt that we do to others. And that's why for like, literally we ended a child tax credit yeah. for, like, for parents with children. We say, you know what, after we did it and it worked, we say, you know what, despite what you said, I know in West Virginia, my folks are spending the money on like Joe, really? Right. Anyway, I mean, it's supposed to be non-political, so stop asking me these questions. I mean, <laughs> well, well let me ask you this last political one. We're getting close to time. But Matt Thompson asked the question, if this was implemented, how would it change our politics? So think of just oh. what you said in California. How would that change it? Oh, if which, which everything was implemented? Yes. Yeah, so let's say we were successful with implementing Guaranteed income. Oh, just guaranteed income. Yeah. I have a big list. How's okay? We just do guaranteed income because we, well, we know right. we got to get to all yeah, of that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we do like if we implement guaranteed income, I will mm-hmm. retire and be like, you know what? Someone else can talk now. I'm good. One thing's off the list. No, um, it would change our politics because a more people will be engaged because more people would have positive interactions with government. If you're economically insecure, etc. Your relationship with government is usually punitive. It's usually you need to come to this court day. It's usually you have to get your car. It's about to get towed. It's usually you owe this bill, et cetera. Versus like, oh, my government sees me, believes in me. I have a, it's, and we saw that in, in some of the data in Stockton, that people had a more positive think thought about government. I think it would also help restore trust in institutions that, that folks would be like, oh, okay, this thing works. It's, it works for me. My, and then my tax, I see more of my tax dollars coming to me, and, and, and that's a good thing. I think it would allow people to engage in politics, because we know that in our country, money is a proxy for time. I can't go to city council meetings. I can't go to this commission. I can't volunteer here and volunteer here, because I got to work. I got to eat. I don't have to pay time off. And, I th- and we saw, there's, it's no surprise, or it shouldn't be a surprise, that the most intense years of labor organizing, of unionization, have been the last couple because A, there was a a, a pandemic, but B, people had more agency because they had stimulus checks. They had the child tax credit. They had the Golden State stimulus. They were able to more in a more powerful or palatable position to bargain and to collectively bargain and to say, you know what, actually, I don't, because people always talk about, one of the things we used to debate all the time was this notion of the dignity of work and that like, your dignity that people want to work because that's how they get their dignity. And, and what we've seen is that actually people have inherent dignity. And if you give people a floor, it allows them to negotiate to be treated with dignity at work, right? And, and, and I think that's how government would change with the guarantee. Okay. Well, we're at time. I'm going to ask you this last question. Mm-hmm. And I, as I ask you this question, I invite you to just leave us with a parting reflection on okay. what we can do to support this work or anything else that you like. Malcolm says, and I'm going to read it exactly as Malcolm wrote it. He says, have you thought about running for governor, senator, fuck it, president, <laughs> to take your vision nationwide? 
Um, well, thank you, Malcolm. So I was lucky enough to spend eight years in local government. In my good years, it's my 20s. <laughs> Prime party years. I spent no Taco Tuesdays. I was like, city council didn't know that for hours. Um, and, and I say that to say I really enjoyed it. And clearly, I believe that government is an important driver for a lot of these things. And I turned 32 in two weeks. Um, so I have a, hopefully, I've been working out and stuff. I have a lot of life ahead. So I'm not in any hurry to run for anything again. I actually enjoy, like, now I'm lying. I used to talk like this when I was still married too. But in my head, I think I talk more freely yes. than I'm not yeah. elected. So I, I, I know that I'm committed to working on these issues. Yeah. Uh, but right now, it's outside of government, which is fine for now. And if it makes sense in the future to run for something, I would seriously consider it. But I truly love being ex-mayor. <laughs> Hilarious, brother. Thank you. Will you all give Michael a hand? Thank you, brother. Thank you. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Michael Tubbs was able to implement policies like a guaranteed income pilot program as the mayor of Stockton, California. Cities and local government have been key to the success of human society for millennia. But this present moment may be a pivotal one for urban life. In his Long Now talk on If Mayors Ruled the World, political theorist Benjamin Barber explores what our societies would look like if the mayors and local governments of major cities took the lead, just as Michael Tubbs did. Here's Benjamin Barber. And let me do some introducing of what the themes are here first. In a teeming world of too much difference and too little solidarity, with democracy in deep crisis everywhere, with sovereign states unable, unwilling to cooperate across borders, politicians, citizens, scholars alike have begun to talk and think about cities. If you love cities, you're going to love the 21st century, says Bruce Katz. The city has, in fact, become our indisputable human habitat. Urbanity may or may not be our nature, but for better or worse, by chance, by design, it defines how we live. More than half the world's people now live in cities. That just happened Last year, the UN announced. Cities are where civilization is forged, where creativity is unleashed, community solidified, and citizenship realized. If we are to be rescued from global anarchy, the city may turn out to be the agent of our salvation. That, at least, is the argument I want to try to make. The foremost challenge we face today is to establish institutions capable of addressing the multiplying cross-border problems of an interdependent world without surrendering democracy. 
to save ourselves from both anarchic and monopolistic forms of globalization. And to do that, we need global democratic bodies that actually work. Nation states have made little progress towards this kind of global governance. Too inclined by their nature to rivalry, to mutual exclusion, they seem quintessentially indisposed to cooperation and incapable of establishing global common goods. Moreover, and this is a challenge for us, democracy is locked in the tight embrace of nation states and there seems little chance either for democratizing globalization or for globalizing democracy as long as the flourishing of democracy depends on the survival and flourishing of warring nation states. So what then can we do? The path forward lies before us, obvious but unchartered. Why not let cities, the most networked and interconnected of our political associations, defined above all by collaboration and pragmatism, by creativity and multiculture, let cities do what states cannot. If, as Edward Glazer has written in his new book about cities, the strength that comes from human collaboration is the central truth behind civilization's success and the primary reason why cities exist. Well, if Glazer is right then, surely cities can and should govern globally. In a phrase, let mayors rule the world. Now, networked cities already encircle the globe in webs of culture, commerce, communication, and they can reasonably be expected to do formally what they are already doing informally, governed through voluntary cooperation and shared consensus. If mayors ruled the world, the three and a half billion people over half the world's population who are urban dwellers and the many more in ex-urban neighborhoods beyond could participate locally and cooperate globally at the same time a miracle of civic glocality that promises pragmatism before politics, innovation instead of ideology, practical solutions in place of sovereignty's posturing. Before you go, we would like to make a small ask of you as a listener. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about it. We rely nearly entirely on word of mouth to grow our audience. And so anytime you rate or leave a review of the podcast or tell a friend about an episode that you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, watch the talks online, or become a member, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of both Michael Tubbs and Benjamin Barber's talks. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 0703 Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Danielle Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to talking with you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view.